Okay, we dedicate our learning this morning to all of the Chol Yisrael, the Fuah Shlema, speedy and painless recovery for all those who are ill, and of course, in particular, our beloved Rabbi Maskowitz, Rabbi Gavriel Pinchas ben Devorah Zlata. So as we said, we're going to try to investigate the Parsha and fulfill the title of our class in Israel Week. Oh, thank you so much. And the uh, title of our class in Israel Week of the Mitzvah of Aliyah. Where do you find the Mitzvah of Aliyah in our Parsha? Where do you find the concept of the significance, the centrality, the core role that Israel plays in Jewish life and living in our formation as a nation? So the book of Shmos, we ended last week by Yechi, and we described that Bereshus is the description of the formation of the first family. All of the ups and downs, the roller coaster ride, the dysfunction of creating a family. The challenges in parenting, the challenges in marriage, the challenges in family growth, the challenges in, in competition within the family, and of, uh, of spoiling one over another. Sefer Bracious took us through the development of a family and culminated and concluded in the notion of the first family of the Jewish people. If Sefer Bracious is about forming a family, then Sefer Shmos is about forming a nation. And our nation had to go through an incubator period to emerge as a nation with a national mission and a national cause and a national mandate we had to first experience the antithesis, the opposite of what we were destined to live. That's what the Brisbane Abyssarim was all about. The promise of God to Avram that your progeny, your children will live in a foreign land, will be enslaved. Why was it necessary? Ramban tells us this was a punishment for Avram going to Mitzrayim and the whole ruse of Sarah as his sister, not his wife. A very radical, a very strong position of the Ramban to be able to criticize Avram that in fact the Gulf of Mitzrayim, our experience in Mitzrayim, enslavement over 200 years, was due to Avram's error, his indiscretion. But God's promise was, you need to first become a nation. Where do you become a nation? It's like, uh, you ever, sometimes uh, I must admit, that I take my children, my uh, daughters, on a Sunday, what do you want to do? They want to go to, I forget what these places are even called, Kolom Yimah, I don't even remember what they're called. You, you take pottery, and you decorate it, you color it, you paint it, and you leave it there. And you can't pick it up for a week. Why do you leave it there? What are they doing with it for that week? They're putting it in the kiln. They have to, what's the right word? Fire it. They have to solidify it. They have to really embed the colors and embed how you've molded and shaped it into it so that it will last as long as possible. Eretz Mitzrayim, Egypt, was the kiln of the Jewish people and God fired the Jewish people up. We went from a family and we emerged a nation by first, first experiencing the antithesis. I don't want to take the time today because we're going to try to do so much to give the overview, but I think we're all familiar with the, uh, the Parsha that begins, Shemos begins by reminding us of the names of all of Yaakov's descendants who went into Mitzrayim. A new Paro had emerged, a debate between the Rishonim. Was it the same Paro? goes back to earlier, the, the same Paro he had forgotten Yosef? Or was it a new Paro who never knew Yosef? But the commentaries point out that either way, the Jews had failed to be a voice in Paro's ear. Whether it was the same Paro who had forgotten or a new Paro who failed to learn of the contributions of Yosef, in either case, how did it come to be that Paro could have forgotten those contributions and turned so cruel to the Jewish people? Because the Jewish people had retreated. The Jewish people had become too isolated, too segregated. They failed to lobby and advocate and participate in society and to be a voice ringing in that Paro's ear, said the Rashbam and the Sforno and so on. 
I think this is a big lesson for our time as well. Maybe a first lesson or the congruence of our Parsha and Israel is the role of APAC. If there is any justification for being in America, right? today's topic is the Mitzvah Aliyah. If there is any justification, it is to be lobbying and advocating, to be influencing the U.S. policy towards Israel. There are three billion reasons why influencing the U.S. policy towards Israel matters. As we speak, Congress is being sworn in, the new Congress, which includes a large turnover and many new members, many from states and districts that they know nothing about Israel. Many don't even own a passport. They've never left this country. They're not educated. We take for granted. And if there is any excuse, if there is, it is to remain a voice in the ear of our, I don't want to call him paro, in the negative sense or the negative connotation, but in the ear of our policymakers and shapers. We have to be relevant in the discussion, in the conversation, to be able to influence policy. So paro had forgotten. He simply forgot the Jewish contribution because he forgot about the Jews other than to see them as a threat and a thorn in his side. He institutes all of this persecution and oppression as we know against them. We know that uh, defying all the odds, Yocheved uh, decides to uh, get pregnant, has Moshe Rabbeinu, has to hide Moshe, puts him in the basket. We all know the story, Basparo, who discovers, reaches out, the miracle, her arm stretches, right? The miracle that we have to sometimes make the effort even for the impossible, that which is beyond our reach is not necessarily beyond our grasp. Or some famous statement that was made like that by a famous English poet. forgot exactly how it goes. And Abbas Paro is the great example of that. Moshe survives. He's raised in the palace. He goes out. He sees the Egyptian hitting a Jew. He sees the two Jews. He has to flee to Midian. He encounters the snare, which is um, on fire, but it's not being consumed. He has a conversation with Karsh Baruch where the Rebona Shalom selects him, recruits him to be the leader who will liberate the people from Egypt, and, uh, and so on. Moshe demurs, Moshe hesitates, HaKadosh Baruch Hu convinces him, and sends him on his way to Mitzrayim to begin the conversation with Paro. Okay, we're all familiar with the Parsha. So let's look at a few Pesukim together. Perak Yimel, I want to start really smack in the middle, because I want to get on to our other topic as well. Perikimel Pasuk Zion, chapter 3, verse 7. Perikimel Pasuk Zion. What page is it in the Stone Chumash? Anyone have it? 302. 302. 302. Says the Torah, we're in the context of the conversation between Hashem and Moshe at the Sneh. For another time, all the symbolism of a bush which is consumed, but it's not burning. Some suggest this is the metaphor for a leader that you can't get burnt out no matter what. Uh, never get burnt out. You can't become consumed to the point that you burn out of your, of your leadership job, of your mission. What's the significance that Moshe has to take his, his shoes off? Admas Kodash, the symbolism of shoes. We've talked about this in the past. You could go online and listen to previous Parsha Shirim. God says, I see the suffering, the impoverishment of my people in Egypt. I hear their cries, I understand their pain. I will descend in order to save them from Egypt and to do what? God says, I will go down and I will save them, I will rescue them from the hand of 
Mitzrayim. And I will do what then? Now the Pesach could have ended there. My people are suffering, they're in servitude, they're oppressed, they're persecuted. I will go down and I will liberate them. And it could have ended there. I will form them into a nation, I will liberate them, and that will accomplish the goal of freeing them from their persecution. But the Pasuk doesn't. It says, what is the purpose? What is the reason? What is the destination for liberating them? To get them out of that land. And to bring them where? Now again, you could have stopped there. Get them out of the land. That's what's key. Where they go? It doesn't matter. Go to Uganda. Go to Borough Park. Go to California. Go to Boca Raton. Go to Eastern Europe or South America or Australia, South Africa. Just get them out of the place they're persecuted. How at the end of the Holocaust we've been liberated from the camps and not brought into Israel but found refuge and safety somewhere, that would have met the goal of being liberated. And yet the Pasuk doesn't end there. Very significantly, and this is what we're going to talk about. Because it says, what is the reason? Liberating from Egypt is only half the job. The goal is the destination, which is, El Eretz Tava to the good and Urechava, broad or wide or, or open area, El Eretz Avas Chalav Udvash to the land that's flowing with milk and honey, El Mekoma Knaaniva Achitia Avmariva Priziva Achibiva Yivusi, to the place where all of these Canaanite nations whom you shall destroy live. What's going on over here? First of all, why does God describe it as Vaered? I will descend in order to liberate you. Why descend? So says the Ibn Ezra, Bavur Hayos Hashemayim Nechbadim Min Haaretz Vashem Malek Vodo Akol. Says the Ibn Ezra. You never heard the Uncle Moshe song? Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. Why does God have to come down? God is already here. God's everywhere. What do you mean, Va'ered? So explains the Ibn Ezra, in truth, Hashem Malek Vodoakol, God fills the entire universe. All space is filled with God's glory. So why does He have to come down? He doesn't have to come down. This is... Linguistic says the Ibn Ezra, the imagery of coming down should tell us that the Xerah, God's decisions happen in the heavens, and He executes those decisions here on earth. And that's what's happening. Because the Xerah happens up there, where we associate God is in the heavens, and we direct our prayers towards the heavens, and we direct the merits we earn towards the heavens. In the heavens is where God decides. He comes down to implement that decision. But others understand it a little bit differently. Look at, for example, look at the Sforno. Why am I coming down? It implies more than just the linguistic imagery that the decision is implemented on earth, but it's concluded in the heavens. But rather, says the Svarno, of Avadja Svarno, the great Italian commentator, no, it means God is about to reveal Himself. God doesn't like to reveal Himself. That defeats the purpose of existence. The purpose of existence is for God to retreat, to be hidden, and for us to have to discover Him. Man in search of God. The purpose of creation is to have free will. Free will is the very fabric of meaning in life. Without free will, we're just robots. If we're pre-programmed to do everything correctly, 
We don't struggle, we don't battle, we have no temptation, we're incapable of making the wrong decision or poor judgment, then there's no meaning in life. The meaning in life is the challenge of having to make the right decision and making the right one. When you make the right decision, then you come close. When you make the wrong decision, you feel distance. It's like in marriage. Remember that movie, what was it called? The Stepford Wives? Is that what it was called? The Robots? Right? So many men sitting here right now are saying, I don't know, that wasn't such a bad, wasn't such a bad idea. But it's a horrible idea. Because if you're married to a robot who sim- simply is your clone, mimics everything you say and want and do and fulfills everything you want, that, that's functionally satisfying, but it doesn't provide a meaningful relationship. It doesn't provide romance or satisfaction. It doesn't provide an emotional, an emotional fulfillment. What provides the emotional fulfillment in a relationship? The knowledge that your spouse, your partner, has needs, has priorities, has things that they prefer, and when you put them before yourself, you feel so close to them. And when you don't, you feel distanced from them. And so whether you have the meaning and the satisfaction, emotional fulfillment of a relationship, or the opposite, the tension and the struggle, is the result of the decisions you make in your free will. The same exact is true with God. With God, we know His needs. He gave us 613 of them, which translate into, in fact, even many, many more. We know what He wants, His priorities, His expectations, what He wants of us, which really is for us, but it's what He wants of us. Well, when we meet those needs, we feel incredibly close. And when we don't, when we defy or disregard those needs or negate them, then we feel distance, we feel apart. So how, how can we have free will? If God were absolutely accessible, if God were revealed... If God were absolutely provable, you couldn't have free will. What preserves our free will? That God is hidden. God doesn't like to reveal Himself. All of this is in the Sfarno. You don't see it there, but I'm telling you it's there. So what the Sfarno says, Vo'ered. God says, I'm coming down. I'm going to start to do these ten plagues. I'm going to split the sea. I'm paying a visit. I'm coming to town. Here I am hidden all the time. And now I'm coming out from behind the curtain. And I'm going to be revealed. And there's a cost to that. Why am I doing that? Why, Vahirid, why am I doing this? So you might thought, you know why God's doing this? To give one heck of a zet to the Mitzrim. To give an unbelievable patch, to smack down those Egyptians for what they did. Says the Sfarno, no, that's not why he's coming. You know why he's coming? To save us and to bring us where we need to go. What's worthy of God coming out from behind the curtain? What supersedes preserving free will through being hidden? Only one thing is more important, and that is helping us find our destiny. And what's our destiny? To get out of Egypt, and where? Into Israel. And for that, it's worth, for that, it's worth coming out from behind the curtain. That's what's all built into this, this Svarno. So let's keep going. Where is he taking us? To this incredible, spacious land. It's flowing with milk and honey, albeit it has the place of the Kanani Chiti, and so on and so forth. Says the Ramban. Zamas Chalabu Dvash, look at the Ramban. Kishvach Trila Sa'arat Shi Tova, Loma Shavir Tovi Afel of Neadam, the Choltov Yimatse Ba. In this Pasuk we have a promise. We're going to come back to this shortly. In this Pasuk we have a promise that Israel is not just a place of refuge. The Ramban says this in his commentary throughout the Torah. 
Israel is a unique and special place. It is distinct and distinguished from the rest of the world. It's not just, well, let's see, we need to find a place to plot this people called the Jewish people. Got to get them out of Egypt. They're suffering there. We need to create a place of refuge. Where should we do it? Where should we do it? Well, anywhere, because they just need to be safe. Any place that you can make a gated community, that'll be good. We've got a gate in the Jews so people stop beating them up. The Ramban says, no. Eretz Yisrael is not a random place. God didn't spin the globe and close his eyes and point and say, oh, that's as good as any. But intrinsic, embedded within the land of Israel is a specialness, is a singularity, is a uniqueness. What is that uniqueness? So says the Ramban, it's a place, Ha'avir tovi afel of ne'adam. The air is rich with spirituality. There's only one place in the world you can experience nevuah prophecy. You know where it is? I'll give you a hint. It's not the five towns. It's not Tinek. It's not even Boca Raton. Only in Israel can, uh, can you receive prophecy. Nevuah is only in the land of Israel. There is no prophecy outside the land of Israel. The land of Israel is a place, Avir de'eret Yisrael machkim. The land of Israel is a place in which your senses are heightened. I think empirically we've all experienced this, right? When you land, when you're there, your senses are heightened, particularly your spiritual antenna. It's a place with the promise of fertility, of, of prosperity. We have a notion that people who are struggling with fertility should visit Israel. Israel is a place of segula. The land of Israel is a place that is predisposed to give you, find favor with whatever you seek. Shechter used to say in Shir that when he was married, he was married for a year or two, he didn't have any children. So he went for a summer to Eretz Israel. He spent the summer in Israel learning. He says, and now I have nine children. <laughs> Eretz Israel is a place, I don't want to describe it as simple as that. The people who suffer, it's among the greatest suffering. Hashem should bless them with their heart's desire, with healthy children. I don't want to minimize and suggest, just take a mission to Israel and it's that simple. But the Tashbet says, and the Ramban says elsewhere, Israel is the place of prophecy. Israel is the place of heightened senses. Israel is a place of our national homeland. Israel is a place predisposed for fertility and prosperity and blessing and so much more. Says the Ramban, this is all here in this Pasuk. This is all here in this very Pasuk. That Avir, the land, Right? What is the Ramban's language? All good can be found there. It's broad, it's wide, it's open. It can fit all the Jewish people spaciously. There's room for everybody. I mean, maybe not during the Israeli elections, but there's room for everybody. Or he says, maybe Rechava means that there are many plains that are level. Unlike in the Middle East in the region, which is filled with mountainous regions, which are a challenge to plant, you can't create a farm on a mountain. Eretz Yisrael has incredible valleys. It has incredible flat lands and areas, says the Ramban, which make prosperity, planting, growing easier. It's a place where your livestock and your cattle can thrive. Where the water is good. It's a place where animals can thrive in providing milk. Because 
Because your cows can only produce good milk, rich milk, when they have wonderful grass to eat, when they have water to drink, and when they have room to roam. And you might think that apparently, I'm not familiar enough, but the Ramban says that because of the mountains, because of the topography of the land, it's not a good place for fruit. Don't think that. The peros are shmenim. The fruit are fat. The fruit are rich and succulent. And they produce, the honey is date honey. Is, is not bee honey. When the Torah talks about honey, it's talking about date honey, not bee honey. The date honey is flowing. And the Torah here is promising the bracha of Israel with all the goodness. Israel is the tzvi. Israel is the, is the microcosm. It is the model. It is the envy of all the other lands. And is it true, by the way? A hundred percent it's true. Israel today is the envy of the whole world. Israel today, what it's producing... Um, what did I just see? CNN? Someone just put out a list of the top ten technological innovations or innovative companies in the last few years, and 50% of them were in Israel. Five out of ten of them were in Israel. A tiny country that's existed for less than a century, that has very few people, that seven Israels fit in the state of Florida. Israel could fit into the state of Florida seven times. And it's producing 50% of the technological innovations to the world. Israel is geographically at the crossroads of trade, where, where it's located. It's the perfect place of, of the world. It's the center of the entire world. Israel is a place that everybody's eyes are upon. They care about. The end of December, Facebook put out their top 10 most talked about topics in the world over the previous year. Do you know that the Israel conflict this past summer, both on their list of top 10 in America and around the world, Israel came in number 5 and number 6 in America and around the world. Ahead of Ebola, ahead of the Olympics, ahead of all these other top... What do people all over the world posting on Facebook care about a little country in the Middle East, smaller than New Jersey? But Israel is the place, as the Ramban predicts, that the world sets its eyes upon, that they're envious of, that Israel is producing what it's producing. And that's why in our Pasha, when God says, I'm taking you out of Egypt, what matters is not just coming out of Egypt. What matters more is why God was taking us out of Egypt. Not just to take us out of Egypt, but rather the destination, where He was going to take us. And where He was going to take us was not some random place, but where He was going to take us was specific. Namely, was the land of Israel. I'll tell you something remarkable. People don't know this. It's in the uh, Jabotinsky book that came out a couple years ago by Hillel Halkin. Fascinating book about the great the revisionist Zionist Vladimir Jabotinsky. So in it, in the 6th Zionist Congress, in the 6th Zionist Congress, when um, Herzl was not as confident that he had a, uh, the vote of everybody, he made a proposal, the Uganda proposal, you've undoubtedly heard of it, where Herzl stood before the Sixth Zionist Congress and said, perhaps we should negotiate with the British, who also controlled Uganda and Africa at the time, that will make the Jewish state in Uganda. Because what matters is, 
a homeland. What matters is a place of refuge. What matters is that we can control our own destiny and protect ourselves from the threats of the world. So Herzl stood before the Sixth Zionist Congress and offered the Uganda proposal. And do you know what the reaction was? This is unbelievable. The vote took place on the fourth day of the Congress, right, Hillel Hawken, in an atmosphere fraught with emotion. 295 delegates voted in favor, 176 were against, and 143 abstained. For Herzl, it wasn't a real victory. Sometimes grumbled about, but always deferred to at a Zionist Congress until now, he was shocked by the size and intensity of the revolt against him. Worse yet, not only had he failed to command an absolute majority of the delegates, the naysayers spontaneously walked out of the hall as soon as the last vote was counted and adjourned to a nearby room where they acted as though a disaster had befallen them. Some wept openly. Others sat on the floor and removed their shoes as Jews did on Tisha B'av, the day of mourning for the destruction of the temple. But here's the incredible thing. Do you know who voted for Herzl's Uganda proposal? It's an amazing fact. The Mizrahi voted with Herzl. Under attack by the anti-Zionist Orthodox establishment for supporting a Jewish return to the land of Israel without divine sanction, it sought to demonstrate that it was motivated solely by a desire to relieve Jewish suffering that was untainted by messianic fantasies. Nearly all, So what happened? The Mizrahi, the religious Zionist movement, and I'm proud to tell you, I'm on the Mizrahi slate at the next Zionist Congress, which everyone needs to vote for in a month from now. I'm going to be writing about it. I don't plan on winning. I'm all the way at the bottom of the slate. But they needed to fill names, so they asked me if I'd put my name. I said, gladly. But the, we, the religious Zionists, the Mizrahi, need to make sure that we're, the Zionist Congress still has an incredible impact on how tens or hundreds of millions of dollars are spent in Israel and the causes to which they go. And most modern Orthodox religious Zionist Jews don't even know that there are still Zionist Congresses that meet and that you can vote, but you can if you become a member online of the World Zionist Organization, it's like $5, then you get a vote. And your vote can determine where this money goes. So anyway, the Mizrahi though, at the 6th Zionist Congress, I was not on that slate, at the 6th Zionist Congress, the Mizrahi voted for the Uganda plan. Why? Because they had the right wing, they had Satmer, they had the right wing of orthodoxy looking over their shoulder. And here they were defensive. No, 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 no. We're not trying to rush the Messianic era. We're not violating the great oaths that Loyalu Bahoma. No. We just want a place for Jews to be safe. And to prove it, they voted in favor of Uganda. What about the secular Zionists? So he writes, Nearly all the secular Zionists of the democratic faction, on the other hand, were fiercely opposed. Products of the shtetl and its values, even having revolted against them, they could not imagine a Jewish homeland that was not the land Jews always longed for. What could be the point of Jewish-owned plantations in a country with roots in Jewish collect- without roots in Jewish collective memory? What devotion could they inspire? By turning his back on Zion, it was argued Herzl had betrayed the movement that bore its name. It's a fascinating subject. Could Israel be anywhere else? Should Israel be anywhere else? And the answer is clearly no from our Ramban and Rambans throughout the Torah. The Ramban over and over talks about the singularity of Eretz Yisrael. The Rav also uses this language. Rabbi Soloveitchik, in his work, Reflections of the Rav, or the work of his talks, it's not in your handouts, called Reflections of the Rav in Volume 1, the Rav says the following, The word singular means being only one. Exceptional, extraordinary, separate, the word segula in Hebrew similarly connotes singularity. In Shemos, Perikutes, 
We'll read it in a few weeks. The Torah tells us the doctrine of the election of Israel as the cardinal tenets of our faith. And you shall be for me segula from all the people. We are to be an am segula, am lachas kaanim. What does it mean? A school is not a red string you wear on your, on your wrist. A school is not, uh, you know, a, um, what are those things called? A chamsa. A school is not, uh, don't step over your little baby brother and stop growing, or don't wear a cat, or you drop a mirror, all this other narishkeit and mishigas. That's not what a segula is. Am segula means singular. The word segula is interpreted by Rashi as a cherished treasure, comparable to costly vessels and precious stones. We are singular to God. And the Rav continues, A school of people inhabits a school of land. It is a land which the eternal your God looks after, on which the Lord your God always keeps his eye from the year's beginning to the year's end. Rashi adds, although God cares for other lands, his relationship with Eretz Yisrael is special. And the Medrash elaborates, Jewish destiny, writes the Rav, is linked with this land. We have no other. Only in this land, our sages say, does the Shekhinah dwell, and only therein does prophecy flourish. This segula attribute of the land is no more rationally explicable than the skula of the people. These are qualities certified by our faith, and history has corroborated the singularity of both people and land. Jewish people couldn't find a homeland in Uganda, or the five towns, or LA, or anywhere but Israel. Just as the Jewish people are singular, so too the land of Israel is singular in its richness and its potential and its spirituality and all that it represents and its centrality not only to the Jewish people but to the world. And that's what the Ramban is saying here and everywhere in Chumash. God did not just take us out of Egypt to be a free, secular, political entity, to emerge an emancipated nation. God took us out uh, for a mission to put us in the place and the only place where that mission could be fulfilled. And we'll see that. Let's get back to the Parsha. Because what happens? How does Moshe react? Pasuk test first. God says, the cries of the Jewish people are reaching me. And I see the pressure. I see the pressure the Egyptians are placing. And God says to Moshe, And therefore, I am sending you to Paro. You will be the catalyst. You will be the vehicle to liberate my people, B'nai Yisrael, me, Mitzrayim, from Egypt. And how does Moshe react? What's Moshe's reaction? Whoa! Who am I? Who am I to go to Paro? Am I the one who can bring the people out of Egypt, to which God responds, yes. How? Why? Vayomer, God says, Ki imach. Because I will be with you. You're right, you can't do it alone. I'm not asking you to go on your own. I will be with you. By the way, which explains why next week's Pasha has the name it does. Not next week, in two weeks' Pasha. Pasha's Bo. Bo El Paro. Why doesn't it say... Lechel Paro. God should tell Moshe, go to Paro. Why does it say Bo? Because if you understand this Pasuk now, you understand two weeks from now. When God says, I will go with you. Eye imach. 
So next two weeks, Parsha, God says, new Bo, come, let's go. Bo, we're going. We're going to Paro. And then God says something really difficult to understand. And this is the sign. You want a sign that I sent you? When you take the people from Egypt, serve God on the mountain. What's the question? That's a sign. A sign is lightning strikes right now. A sign is the ground opens up. A sign is the staff turns into a snake. The sign is that when this is all over, something will happen, and that's the sign that you sent me now? All the commentaries are bothered. What does mean? So you have to understand it in the context of the real conversation that Moshe and the Ribbonu Shalom are having. Go back. What does Moshe say? Mi Rashi interprets what is mi anochi? Ma ani chashuv ladaber im amalachem. I'm not. What are you, who am I? I am not chashuv enough to speak with kings. Who am I to go? Mechiotzias bnei Yisrael. Rashi continues. Vaaf im chashuv ani. And even if I am dignified, even if I am significant enough, distinguished, prestigious enough. Who says the people are ready? Who says they merit a miracle of being freed from Egypt? And that's what God responds. Rashi says, God response correlates exactly with Moshe's hesitations. On your hesitation that you said, Who am I to go? Who am I to go? You're not going, and you're not going alone. You're going on my behalf. You're right, Moshe. Who are you to go on your own behalf? Without representing anyone or anything, who are you to march into the palace and demand of, Mo- of Paro to release the people? But you're not going on your own. You're going on my behalf as my agent. And that's what you saw in the sna in the bush. Just like you saw, says Rashi, the bush was burning but wasn't consumed. Who can tell a bush to burn and not consume? You light something on fire, it should ignite. How is it possible it didn't? Says God, you know why? Because it was fulfilling my mission. I am the omnipotent, infinite God. I tell the bush what to do, and I'm appointing you to be my agent. And the same way the bush didn't hesitate but fulfilled my will, you are an agent or an extension of me. And that's the reason God chose that sign. And Usha'alta, you Moshe asked, Maz Yeshli Yisrael, in what merit shall they leave? You know why? I have a big plans for them. I'm not taking them out because they necessarily deserve it right now. I'm taking them out because I have big plans for them. Because after three months after leaving Egypt, they're going to stand on a mountain. They're going to get a charge and a mission. They're going to get an assignment. And so on. So Rashi says, God's response correlates exactly with Moshe's hesitations. The Kliyakar also 
Similarly, look at the Kliyakar. Nir lefar shemoshe amar mishnei tzadim. Ein ani roi, I'm not worthy l'shlichazeh. Hein mitzad shiflus ha-shliach. Hein mitzad godal malas Yisrael. Both I am unworthy and the mission is so exalted. Ki Moshe ya anav mikol adam. Moshe was so humble. Uvein avaya hu shafal anashim. He was the lowest of the people. L'fichach amar mi anochi ki elech aparo. Who am I? And to this God responds both. And the Kliyakar expands similar to what Rashi said. The Rashpam, listen to this Rashpam, it's great. Rashpam says, The Rashpam, Rashi's grandson. You really want to understand what's going on? Pay close attention to what I have to say here. Why? Those who came before me, I don't know, including I guess his grandfather, those who came before me didn't understand this at all. Moshe was answering about two things. And this is a long Rashbam who usually doesn't say a lot on the Torah here has an elaborate long comment where he tries to explain it. I'm trying to bring your attention that they're all bothered by what exactly is the conversation. Moshe hesitates. God somehow convinces him. He convinces him by saying, What really is going on here? So I want to read to you the Rav's interpretation of what's going on here. Oh, please tell me I printed it. I don't think I printed it. Ah. I didn't print it. Ah, I did. Here it is. Okay, great. The, the new Rav Chumash on Sefer Shmos. We've been enjoying it on Bracious. The new one on Sefer Shmos is coming out in a couple weeks. It's not out yet. So on the website of the publisher, they offer the entire Parsha Shmos uh, as a PDF. You could print it out and enjoy it even for free, everyone, even before it comes out. So says the Rav, this is the sign for you that it was I who sent you. When you take the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on the mountain. Moshe asked the Almighty, who am I that I should go to Paro and I take the children out? How did this reply answer Moshe's query? It wondered the Rav. The Almighty was stating, no Moshe, that the purpose of the Exodus is not political and social freedom. I did not choose you to be a diplomat or a king. If political freedom were the objective, there are indeed better candidates than yourself. I would not have chosen you to lead the nation. Right? What do politicians need? First and foremost, charisma. Their charisma and their speaking ability far supersedes their actually, actual creativity and policies. I don't mean they should, but they do. In reality, in elections, your charisma and your ability to communicate your ideas, your charm, Moshe didn't have any of that. And that was Moshe's argument to God. I'm not a good speaker. Just as an aside, by the way, the Drosha Saran develops the notion, why in fact did God choose somebody with a horrible speech impediment? Why did God choose somebody without the charisma, without the charm? It wasn't by chance, says the Ran, it's by design. You know why God did it and our generation can appreciate this. 
Because in perpetuity, God did not want man looking back saying, you know what? This whole Torah thing is a hoax. These values, these morals, these ideals, it's some charming, charismatic person on a promise, on a platform of whatever, stood up and convinced the people. But it's not real, it's not genuine, it's not true. He was just good in the election cycle. He was fantastic at making promises. Transformational change. But there's no truth to it. It's just empty charm and empty charisma. So in order for God to communicate in perpetuity that the Torah speaks for itself, it's compelling on its own right, it doesn't need a charismatic mouthpiece, God by design chose a faulty, blemished mouthpiece. No one could ever say this whole Torah thing in Jewish people worked out because there was some charismatic, smooth-talking person who put it on them. Says the Ran, it was the opposite. We've lived in a generation that has seen a number of charismatic, smooth-talking individuals upon whom many base their religious experience or others, and when that person falls, they leave their religious experience. As opposed to feeling the, the, uh, the truth and the authenticity of the Torah rather than the person who is, who is delivering it. So in any case, God is saying to Moshe, that's what's happening in the conversation, says the Rav. Moshe, this is not a political or social freedom. You're not chosen to be a diplomat. If I needed an ambassador, Moshe, you are the last choice. If political freedom were the objective, there are better candidates. Rather, the purpose of the Exodus is to create a holy nation, a Torah nation, based on what they will later hear on the mountain. The goal of the Exodus is the later revelation at Sinai, to create a sacred people, the transformation of a subjugated people into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. For this purpose, I do not need a political leader, but a Rebbe, a teacher, a mentor, who will lead and guide the people. For this role, you are indeed the best candidate. Zelachos, this is a sign, it means this is a promise. The purpose of this is not to be a secular political entity, an emancipation to emerge yet another nation. Jewish people are not a nation. We are a combination of a nation and an ethnicity and a religion and so much together. And you, Moshe, will be, you will be the leader of this, of this people. For that reason, the Jew celebrates Pesach but does not conclude Pesach by celebrating Shavuos is not even celebrating Pesach. Pesach is a holiday that goes many, many weeks long. I don't want to scare anybody. By the way, Pesach is 13 weeks away just so that everybody can uh, go home and take your Xanax. But Pesach is, I think, 12 or 13 weeks away, which means you should be buying your meat now and freezing it. I tell people every year... Meat the whole year long and chicken is kosher le Pesach. So before the price goes up, buy it now and freeze it. That's the greatest gift I can give you today. It was worth coming to the class just for that. I usually tell people Purim time, but it's even earlier. Now that Hanukkah is over. Pesach culminates with Shavuos. That's the purpose, writes the Ramban and Sefer Vayikra and Pasha Samur. That's the reason we have Svira Saomer. Svira Saomer makes Pesach the first days and Shavuos are the last days of one continuous long seven week long yontif. We count 49 days, we count the days of Svirah Salomer, and then we have Shavuos. 
Shavuos are called Atzeres. When else do we call something Atzeres? Shmini Atzeres. Says the Ramban, the role Shmini Atzeres plays as the last days of Sukkot, so too Shavuos are the last days of Pesach. And the Ramban explains for this very reason of the Rav. Because coming out of Egypt was not the goal. It was half the goal. Being liberated, emancipated from persecution and oppression to find a place of refuge, that was half the goal. If you observe Pesach and you don't keep Shavuos, it's like creating a Jewish state in Uganda. You forgot where we're supposed to go. To go to Shavuos where we receive the Torah on the mountain and from there march into the land of Israel which is the fulfillment and the realization of our mission as a people. All of this is in this week's Pasha. You didn't know the Mitzvah of Aliyah is in Pasha Shmos. But this is this Ramban. I'm taking you out of Egypt and you don't just stop there. It's not just to come out of Egypt. It's to go to Israel. so min to the perfect singular Segula land, the singular land for a singular people with a singular Torah. Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, and Torah Yisrael. The three are intertwined. They go together. To think you'll be a Jewish people with a Jewish Torah in Uganda is not a fulfillment of the Jewish mission. So yes, we could sit here and talk about is there a mitzvah to make Aliyah? And I'll run through those sources quickly. But then we would be missing the forest for the trees. Yes, you can have the halachic debate within the halachic sources. And I'll share it with you quickly. Whether it's the Mishnah and Ksuba, Sandaf Kuf Yud. You don't have this in your handout either. I don't think we're going to get to your handout. The Mishnah and Ksuba, Sandaf Kuf Yud, the Gemara there, which tell us that if the husband wants to make Aliyah and she says, I'm not coming, he says, good, then I don't have to pay your Ksuba. You could stay here and I'm not paying. If she wants to make Aliyah and he's staying, he has to pay her ksuba. This is codified in Shulchan Aruch. Now that's not true, by the way, if she says, I want to move to Tinek, or the five towns. I want to be down the block from my parents. He can say, good, zai gesund, and uh, I'm exempt from the ksuba. Because we have to come to this, and you're leaving, and you're therefore, uh, you therefore forfeit your ksuba. Israel is unique, the only place, because it's a mitzvah to be there. The Ramban and Sefer Bamidbar, Perak Lamigim, Apostolic Nanzayan, and the Apostolic Vahorashtam Esaretz, Vyashavtem Ba, Kilachem Nasati Esaretz, Lareshes Osa, says the Ramban, Aldaiti Zum Mitzvah Asay. The Ramban says, Vyashavtem Ba, living in Israel is a positive commandment. From the Ramban, it's clear. Everyone wonders, why does the Rambam not count? In his Sefer Amitzvos, in his Mishnah Torah, the Rambam omits the mitzvah to live in Israel. It must be the Rambam was Satmer. It must be he was a member of the Ture Karta. Why didn't the Rambam list the mitzvah to move to Israel? And there have been countless books written on this subject. The commentary on the side of the Rambam called the Megillus Esther opines, the reason the Rambam didn't write it is because there is no mitzvah. When was there a mitzvah of the Yashavtaba to live there? When the Jewish people were going with Yehoshua. When Moshe took them towards Israel and Yehoshua took them into Israel and David HaMelech built the Beis HaMikdash, that's when we had a mitzvah. But once the Batei Mikdash were destroyed, says the Megillus Esther, we are not obligated to return there. Israel loses its singular value until Mashiach. 
And it's this Megillah Sester which is the basis for those who are opposed to returning to Israel, who say that we don't go until Mashiach arrives. Others, the Stechemet says, the mitzvah of living in Israel is Midrabanan. It's a rabbinic commandment, and that's why the Rambam didn't list it. The Avnei Nezer, the Sachat Shavarebi says no. You know why the Rambam didn't list it? Because the Rambam never lists a mitzvah when there is, he already lists another mitzvah which is part of the same thing. For example, the Rambam, when he talks about the mitzvah of making the different kalim of the Beis HaMikdash, does he list each kli or does he just list the general mitzvah of the Asuli Mikdash? Similarly, says the Avnei Nezer, the Rambam already lists hacharem tacharimam, that you have to level Israel, get rid of idolatry. So it's obvious what's the reason you're doing that? To inhabit it, to dwell there, to live there. So the Avnei Nezer says, it's obvious the Rambam does count the mitzvah, he subsumes it under another mitzvah that's already been counted. But my answer, it's not my answer, the answer many give, is the Rambam also does not list in Tariag mitzvahs the mitzvah to breathe. He doesn't list the mitzvah to breathe. Who says I have to breathe? Why doesn't the Rambam list the mitzvah to breathe? Why? Because it's obvious. If the Torah gives us an entire framework for life, it's obvious I have to do everything to preserve my life. I have to breathe. I don't need the Rambam to say breathe. It's obvious. And if you read Tanakh, if you read Torah, if you read our davening every day, do you have to be told the centrality that Israel plays and to live there? It's obvious. It's almost insulting to suggest that the Rambam needs to include a mitzvah to live in Israel. It is obvious that's where the Jewish people belong. Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, and Torah Yisrael. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva. He calls Yeshiva Saret Yisrael a mitzvah kiyumis. The same way that I don't have to put tzitzis. Uh, I don't have to wear tzitzis. This is the secret that we don't share with our young men. There's really no obligation to wear tzitzis. If you're wearing a four-cornered garment, you can't wear it without tzitzis on the corners. It's a mitzvah kiyumis. If you're in the circumstance of wearing a four-cornered garment, then you get the mitzvah when you put the tzitzis on. But am I obligated to put on tzitzis every day? No. Of course, we've adopted it. We've embraced it. So Rav Moshe says, living in Israel is like tzitzis. You're not obligated to go, but when you do go, then you are in fulfillment of a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah kiyumis. So everyone who wears tzitzis even though they're not obligated, should equally be moving to Israel, even though they're not obligated. Because we show that attitude towards the mitzvah kiyumis. Shulchan Aruch, by the way, paskins this way. Shulchan Aruch, Orachayim, Sven, Reish, Memches, paskins, Ha'ola le'eretz Yisrael, in nizdamna lo shayara, afilu be'erev Shabbos, kevan dedvar mitzvah, yachol lifrosh, uposek imayim lishbos. Even though normally Erev Shabbos, you can't travel or arrange for travel, because it could conflict with Shabbos, but if there's a caravan going to Israel, it doesn't mean you can fly on Shabbos to make Aliyah. But it means that even the arrangements which normally are not appropriate for Arab Shabbos, but moving to Israel, what's the Shulchan Aruch's language? Tidvar mitzvahu. It is a mitzvah to move to Israel. It is obvious it's a mitzvah. It doesn't need to be said in the Rambam. And that's really what I wanted to get to. It's now 10.30. That's really what I wanted to get to. Take this booklet home. Read it on your own.
But if you understand, it's, it's really somewhat self-evident. What I wanted to get to is, if you understand what Judaism is all about, as we just saw in our Parsha, that God's goal and purpose for us is not to be a secular, liberated entity. But we are a people who have a mission. And that mission can only be fulfilled in one place. Then it's obvious that we belong there. It's obvious. Is there a mitzvah to move to Israel? Absolutely. A mitzvah chiyuvis, a mitzvah kiyumis, a mitzvah derabonon, a mitzvah daraisa. You can give chaburas and shiurim from the morning till night about what's the nature of the mitzvah. But if you're a religious Jew who davens and says the words of davening, if you're reading Sefer Shmos, the story of God taking us out of Egypt, and why? Laha'aloso min haaretz el To take us out, to go towards. So to go towards is part of the definition of what it means to be a Jew. To identify as part of the Jewish experience. To want to be part of the Jewish destiny. Now there are legitimate reasons. There are legitimate excuses of those who cannot make Aliyah immediately. But there are no legitimate reasons not to plan Aliyah. Not to struggle with Aliyah. There are legitimate reasons people have. I'm still trying to figure out what mine are. But there are legitimate reasons. There are legitimate reasons. But there is no legitimate reason or excuse not to plan or struggle or wrestle or indeed feel guilty. We should feel guilty that we are spectators to the Jewish story watching from the sidelines. And that someday, it will end with this. So the handout that you have is a class I'd given previously. We are a generation. You know, for 2,000 years, you told a Jew in Poland, you tell a Jew in Germany, or you told a Jew wherever in the world, you know, it's a mitzvah, chiyuvah, kiyumas, this, that, or the other. They say, Israel? Israel is a desolate land filled with swamps and malaria where no Jews live and no ability to earn a living. Not to mention, I can't get a visa or I'm trying to survive this pogrom or I'm trying to get liberated from this concentration camp. In the last 2,000 years, who could dream of Aliyah? Though they did, the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah, and so on. But who could dream of it? But we're living in a time we are directly still in the shadow of the Holocaust. The close proximity, 1945 to 1948, history will forever look back and it's incomprehensible how six million Jews a plan to exterminate Jews from the world and three years later we had our own state. It cannot be a coincidence. These two incredibly significant events happened in such proximity. What's the meaning? The Satmar Rebbe, Rabbi Teitelbaum, and his Vayol Moshe, sees one significance to the proximity. You could read that in Source 1. Rav Kook, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cohen Kook, by the way, interestingly, I just read this week, had a picture of Herzl hanging in his apartment. Right? Herzl was the father of secular Zionism, but not the first Rav Kook, the first chief rabbi of Israel. His son, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cohen Kook, had a picture of Herzl hanging in his apartment. I think that's interesting. But he saw another significance to the Holocaust in close proximity to the founding of the state. But the third, the one I wanted to draw your attention to, is that of the Rav. In his famous speech, later turned into an essay, Kol Dodi Dofeik, it was a speech given in 1956, Yom Ha'atzmaut, 1956, at Yeshiva University. The Rav is eight years after the founding of the state, and he's trying to make sense of it. How could there be six million 
the extermination of the Jewish people, followed closely by our having sovereignty in the state of Israel, the land of Israel. And he describes the six knocks. God is knocking on our door. And he's knocked on our door in six different ways, describes the Rav. And what are we doing when we sit here in America? God is knocking on the door and we are ignoring the knock. We're listening to Him knocking on the door. And we're ignoring the knock. Now if we answer the door and say, I want to come with you, but I can't come right now, so I'm going to visit as often as I can, I'm going to send money, I'm going to lobby and advocate and call as often as I can, but at least answer the door. Don't ignore the knock. Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld was the Rav of Yerushalayim. Not exactly described as a Zionist in the uh, political sense, but certainly was an incredible lover of Eretz Yisrael and saw its significance. And one day, one day he asked, where are all the religious Jews coming to live in Israel? This is the fulfillment. This is the realization of the purpose of our people. This is why God took us out of Egypt to be an Am Yisrael and Torah, he's observing Torah, Israel in Eretz Israel, and only then can we most effectively fulfill our mission, our mandate to transform the world. So, the, so Rav Yosef Chaim Zunnenfeld said, "Now I understand the words from Musaf Anyantif. We say, because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. Who did that? That was Hashem." And and we've become distanced from our land. This we've done to ourselves voluntarily. By not longing for Aliyah, by not thinking about Eretz Yisrael, by not visiting, going, contributing, lobbying, advocating. That second half, to be distanced, that we've done to ourselves. So in the Sefer Ra'ish al-Achoma, it quotes, Rav Zonenfeld is saying, and I end with this quote, Many times have I directed that the religious Jews in the diaspora be instructed that anyone who has the ability to come to Eretz Yisrael and doesn't will have to account for his failure in the future world. Is it a mitzvah chiyuvis, kiyumis? What's the nature of the mitzvah? It doesn't matter. If you learn, read the davening, if you learn Tanakh, if you understand Pasha Shemos, God could have left us in Egypt if we were going to already stay in Boca and Tinak. His purpose was to bring us into the singular land, a singular people with a singular Torah. And so while not all of us can make Aliyah today, every one of us should think about and struggle with and plan for the day that Amir Tzashem we can. And please God, we will see the Geula Shlema Va'amitis, the full and complete redemption.